Sometimes I get pretty frustrated with myself. I have been following Christ for a while now. At least it feels that way. I have a pretty good idea of who God is as my Father. I know He created me. I know He loves me no matter what. And I understand how Jesus has redeemed me and become my Savior. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, I have to honestly say I have a lot of unanswered questions. It just doesn't seem to work for me. I look at other Christians and they seem to know exactly who the Holy Spirit is. The only problem is that one person's image of the Holy Spirit looks completely different than the next person's. They seem to have it all figured out. But I have questions. I read in the Bible where Jesus says, We will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on me. But I don't know that I have ever felt that power. Jesus said we would do greater things than he did, but I have never come close to raising someone from the dead. What does power mean? In the book of Acts, the people closest to Jesus heal people with their shadows. Should I be able to do that? Should I be able to tell when people are lying to me? What is this speaking in tongues thing, really? I have seen some people do things under the power of the Spirit that makes me think, I don't want that power. But maybe my concept of power is different from God's. Maybe the things the Holy Spirit gives me power for are not sensational. What if when Jesus said we would do greater things than him, he was talking about the way we live our lives, the decisions we make, the words we speak? What if the Holy Spirit is so powerful that he is the source in every Christ follower, no matter how different that looks? What if the Holy Spirit gives me the power to decrease so that God can increase? The Holy Spirit. Do you have any questions? Questions about who He is? Questions about what He does? Do you have any questions? Questions about gifts of the Spirit, especially sign gifts like healing and miracles and speaking in tongues. Questions like, do I need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? If I am, what is the evidence of that? Or do I need to be filled with the Spirit? And how do I know if that takes place? Or I really want my life to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, but how does that happen? I mean, there are a lot of questions regarding the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Am I wrong to question the dudes that I see on television <clears throat> that they touch a person and they fall out and they're slain in the spirit or people bolt out of wheelchairs and I never see that happen? What is the work of the Holy Spirit? Who is he and what does he do? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Person is as much God as God the Father and God the Son. He is obviously a spirit. He is a he. He is a person. And as we look at the scriptures and we look at church history, one of the things we recognize is that, as Mark Driscoll, a pastor that I listen to all the time, said the Holy Spirit has been the forgotten person of the Trinity for a long time. It seems like for many years that uh, the church placed little emphasis upon the work of the Holy Spirit. However, in recent years, the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit has become an emphasis within the church. And as we look at that, the sad thing is many churches have been divided rather than united over the work of the Spirit. Many people in the body of Christ have broken fellowship with one another over the work of the Holy Spirit. Many of us look suspiciously at one another over the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why shipwreck, which is a the theme of our whole series, is very appropriate when we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. Lines are drawn in the sand. Doctrinal lines are drawn. There are wild-eyed charismatics who always receive prophetic utterance, visions, words of knowledge, and they, they look at others suspiciously who don't have that experience. And then there are fundamentalists and legalists and, and traditionalists who say, if you raise your hand in worship, you probably ought to have it lopped off. I mean, what's the truth and where does it all end? Someone asked me recently, uh, they said, are there words of knowledge spoken at Temple Bible Church? And I kind of looked at him and said, I certainly hope so. <laughs> I, I mean, I, after preparing for 10 to 15 hours every week to prepare a message and to look at it, I hope there are a few words of knowledge that are spoken at Temple Bible Church. And I understood what they really meant. Are there people that stand up in your body and uh, utter prophetic utterances or what's termed words of knowledge? And who's right, who's wrong, and what happens there? Well, we're not here to divide the body of Christ. We're here to unite the body of Christ. We're here to talk about what it is that the Spirit does. What is his role, and what should our response be to his role? If you look at the title of the message, I entitled it, When, because one of the symbols of the Holy Spirit is the wind. It's one of the symbols of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and he says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it's gone. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Just as the, the wind comes and goes, and in fact, it's the same Greek word, pneuma, likewise, the Holy Spirit is like wind. In, John, in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it's the birth of the church. It's a day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, it's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 2, 1 and 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. If you read, the Acts, uh, read Acts chapter 2, it talks about the Holy Spirit is what came at that point in time. And so the Holy Spirit is likened into a wind. What, what are some of the things that the Holy Spirit does? What is the role of the Holy Spirit, and what should our response be to his role? In John chapter 16, the passage I have you turn to, it talks about the Holy Spirit as convictor. We could list about 15 different things or more that the Holy Spirit does, but I'm going to settle with just four. In John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus is speaking. He says to the disciples, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, we read that passage, and it's uh, just clean words on a page. 
we read it and then we get on to more important things. But I want you to stop and I want you to listen to what Jesus is saying through the eyes of the disciples. Put the disciples' sandals on. They've been with Jesus for three years. For three years, they've watched him do the miraculous. For three years, they saw him walk on water. They saw him feed fish and chips to 5,000 people. I mean, they have seen demons cast out. They've seen the miraculous take place. They recognize he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he looks at these 12 disciples and says, By the way, guys, if I go away, it's to your advantage. And they have to be scratching their heads saying, What? I mean, you are the Messiah, you're the King, you are the Lord, you are the Chosen One, you are the Anointed One. How can it be to our advantage that you go away? And by the way, the word, the Greek word for advantage there means it's profitable or it's beneficial. Jesus is saying, it is beneficial to you if I go away. It's profitable to you if I go away. It's to your advantage if I go away. And you have to ask the question, how can that be? I mean, if you are living with the Son of God, how could it be advantageous? How could it be beneficial? How could it be profitable for him to leave and for something else to happen? That something else is for the Spirit, the Helper, the Comforter, the Counselor. Depending on what translation you have, he's going to come. The Greek word is paraclete. He comes alongside you. He's saying, I want you to know it is advantageous, it's beneficial, it's profitable if I, the Messiah, leaves and the Spirit comes. Wow. Two things about that before I move on. First of all, do you hear what Jesus is saying about the Spirit of God? I mean, he is elevating the Spirit of God and saying, you know what? This is the Spirit. This is the third person of Trinity. And he is showing that he leaves, the Spirit comes, and it's just as powerful as his presence, even more so. And our second thing is saying, the best time to be alive is not when Jesus is walking on the earth. And you're talking to somebody, or I'm talking to you, after having just been to Israel walking where Jesus walked and stuff. And I hear people all the time say, if I could only live back in the good old days, back when Jesus was, if I could only see what he did. Jesus said, no. No, 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 no. It's more advantageous for you today than it was then. Do you hear that? Do you believe that? I mean, most of us say, man, if we could see the miracles of Jesus, be around with Jesus, Jesus say, no, it's more advantageous to you today that it's more beneficial, it's more profitable because now you have the Spirit of God living within you. I hear people all the time saying, man, you know, look at what our world's coming to, huh? Look at our culture. Look at those politicians. Look at these young people. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Today is more beneficial than in my day. You've got to quit looking at the circumstances of life around you. Quit looking at the circumstances. Look at Christ. He says it's more beneficial that I go away because after I leave, the helper is going to be there. And look at what he says. The helper I'm going to send to you will be there. When that helper comes, he's going to convict you. If you write in your Bibles in verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's going to convict you. The word for convict is an interesting word. It comes out of legalese of that day. It's a legal term. It means when a criminal is determined to be guilty. When he is, it's defined, his guilt is defined, his guilt is fixed. Basically, what that scripture is saying is the Spirit convicts you. The Spirit says guilty, guilty, guilty. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard over the years, Gary, every time you're preaching, you look right at me the whole time. <laughs> and I am. I'm looking right at you. I got you. I'm not leaving you. Or, 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 or 
I hear, you know, Gary, every time you preach, it's like you're reading my mail. Well, I don't have access to all your email accounts. I don't read all your mail. But the reality of it is sometimes you sit out there and your heart beats out of your chest and you feel like I'm reading your mail and you feel like my eyes are not taken off of you. That is the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's your heart saying guilty, guilty, guilty. He's talking to me, to me, to me. That's the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. What does he convict us of? If you look at chapter 16, verse 8, he says he will convict you concerning sin. Verse 9 says, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. If you have not trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you hear a message about Jesus. You hear a message about trusting him for the forgiveness of your sins. At the end of the service, you hear me say, it's time. If you want to receive Christ, if you want to pray to receive him, trust him. Your heart beats out of your chest while you sit out there. That is the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. So what happens when you're convicted? I mean, what should the response be to one who falls under conviction? One who falls under conviction should respond with confession. One who is convicted should confess. One author says this, God makes us miserable through conviction to make us joyful through confession. Hey, when you are convicted by the Spirit of God, you should confess. If you don't know Christ as Savior, you confess Him as your Savior. 1 John 4.15 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He is in God. And so when you hear about Jesus and about him dying on your behalf and when you hear about the need to accept him as your savior and your heart beats out of your chest, that is the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit touching your heart so you might respond in confession and acceptance of him as your savior. Now many of you have done that. Sometimes you hear messages, sometimes you read the word, sometimes you listen to guys on the radio or a podcast or whatever, and guys like me begin to preach, or maybe it's a TBC, and, and you hear a message, and they begin talking about, you know, your need to confess your sin. You already know Christ, but you need to, you're convicted of your sin, and maybe I'll talk about gossiping or about judging others, or maybe about uh, harboring unforgiveness or being immoral or being filled with greed or anger or all those things that you do, or maybe I talk about things you don't do, like spending time with the Lord or being generous with your finances or not serving in the body of Christ or not responding to a need you hear of. And your heart beats out of your chest. And you're saying, guilty, guilty, guilty. That's the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us, labels us guilty, and then we confess. About a year ago, I used a story that talks about the freedom of confession. Uh, the author's writing says, when I was in high school back in the 70s, I got pulled over by the police a grand total of 13 times. I'm not proud of that statistic, but I'm proud of this. I only got three tickets. I was a terrible driver, but I was a good talker. So he became a preacher. I got my first ticket on the way to a basketball game. I made a left-hand turn to, at a 45-degree angle into oncoming traffic that would have made NASCAR fans proud of me. The police officer I cut off, she was not so proud of that. She wrote me a ticket for $50. $50 in 1970s for a high school seniors, a lot of money. He said, I decided to keep the ticket a secret from my parents and try to pay it myself. Like any good son, I was concerned about my parents' psychological well-being and didn't want them to worry. 
about what I'd done. So I kept the, seek, the ticket a secret. I made one error in judgment. I didn't realize a police department, who probably knew there were a lot of good kids like me trying not to make their parents worry, they sent a copy of the ticket to my home address. My mom opened the envelope. She showed it to my dad without me knowing that they knew they kept my secret a secret. Interesting, isn't it? He says, meanwhile, I lived under a cloud of guilt. I loved my parents. I felt bad about keeping the ticket a secret. The longer I kept it a secret, the harder it was to come clean. I lived in constant fear that they would somehow find out and to top it off. I had financial pressures because I didn't know where I'd get $50 from. I played ball so I couldn't work. Several weeks passed and the last game of our season took place. He was an all-conference, all all-district player. It was a championship game. Long story short, he scores the winning basket in front of hundreds of fans. He says, after the buzzer went off, the court was flooded. We were in complete euphoria. I was the hero. Why my dad did what he did at that time, I'll never know. He walked up to me, gave me a hug, and he said, son, I'm proud of you. And then he said, I also paid for your ticket. He said, in that moment, I went from the heights of euphoria to the depths of depression. Somehow my dad knew. Somehow he had found out. And all the guilt washed over me. But then he looked at me and said, son, it's okay. It's okay. And this author writes and says, nothing is freeing as confessed sin. Nothing is as isolating as guilt and keeping it a secret. That's why the enemy wants to keep your sins a secret. If you keep your sins a secret, you'll be trapped in a cage of guilt the rest of your life. The only way out is through confession. Trying to keep a secret from God. That's a joke, isn't it? I mean, really. You're going to sin, and you think the God of the universe is not going to know it, not going to see it, and so you're going to hide it. Or you're going to do it here. When you are convicted, your response should be a response of confession. I hate when God does this to me. When I preach on something, I'm looking for an illustration, didn't have one on this. And so Bev is getting ready to take off yesterday, fly to D.C., take care of our grandson for a little while while uh, our son and daughter-in-law have to work. And so I I said, Bay, I'm going to pick you up at 1230. Your plane's 2 o'clock out of Colleen. And uh, long story short, she thought I said 3 instead of 2. And so I get there at 1230, and she's not completely ready. Her bags aren't completely packed. And now we're, and I get a little gruff and said, Babe, what have you been doing? Texting and talking? (laughs) Which she had been doing. And... uh, But she didn't look at me and say, you're such a kind, understanding, loving husband. You know, the minute those words came out of my mouth, I knew I was wrong. And so I said, babe, I am so sorry. I can be such an idiot sometimes. And then I went to the other room and said, you know, Lord, I don't know if I'm ever going to learn this thing. I I am so sorry. I I can be such an idiot sometimes. And I hate it when he gives me illustrations like that just before you preach. I mean, I don't want to be that way. But that's the reality of who we are at times. Now, what if I had said that to my wife and not been kind to her, not repented to her and to the Savior? I'd be up here talking and it wouldn't be my experience. When you're convicted, you confess. Another role of the Holy Spirit. He is our comforter. 
He is our comforter. By the way, I don't use that illustration to brag about me or say, look at what I've done. It's the opposite. I feel terrible for doing that. Sometimes I respond the way I should. Sometimes I shouldn't. He's our comforter. In John 14, 16, he says, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper. If you've got a King James out there, you look at it, it says comforter. If you've got an NIV, it says counselor. The word is paraclete, one who comes alongside. He tells the disciples, I'm going to ask the Father. He's going to give you one who comes alongside you. Uh, By the way, he says in that particular verse, and he will be with you forever. Why is Jesus saying it's better that I departed so the Spirit can be imparted who is going to live inside of you every single day of your life the moment you accept Christ as your Savior? But the comforter, the helper, the one who comes alongside, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. When the helper, the counselor, the comforter comes, the one who comes alongside you, uh, who I send from the Father, he's going to testify about me. What what John is saying in that context, or what Jesus is saying in the context in John's gospel is this. The disciples in John chapter 14, 1, are concerned. That they are filled with anxiety, they're filled with worry, they're struggling because Jesus just told them he's going to a place where they cannot come. And in John 14, 1, he says, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. The disciples are filled with anxiety, they're filled with worry, they're filled with struggles. And Jesus says, I want you to be comforted in the way I want you to be comforted are the verses I just showed you. You're going to be comforted through the comforter who comes alongside you. I'm leaving. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you a spirit who will indwell you forever. And we should say, amen, amen, amen. Because when Jesus left, he didn't leave them or us as orphans, but at the moment of our salvation, the Spirit of God indwells our lives. And so he comforted the disciples by telling them, I want you to know you don't have to be fearful. The one who comes alongside, the paraclete, the comforter, will be yours. So when you're comforted, what do you do? When you are comforted by the Spirit, what should your response be? In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we can go home and watch TV and drink lemonade. What's it say? Blessed be the God and Father who comforts us in our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with we received when we were comforted by God. God does not comfort you to make you comfortable. God comforts you so you can comfort others. Let me say that again. God does not comfort you to make you comfortable. God comforts you so you can comfort others. Let me be real frank about or real, real concrete about this. Who best to comfort the person who's just miscarried than a woman who's experienced that same heartbreak? And who best to come alongside a couple dealing with infertility than a couple who's been through that same struggle? And who better to comfort the person who's lost a spouse or a child or a parent than someone who's walked through those waters? And who best to comfort one who is in a troubled marriage or has a prodigal child than one who's cried themselves to sleep night after night because they've journeyed those same steps? And who better to comfort the one who's lost a job or has financial struggles or is in a terrible job situation than one who has trekked up that mountain? 
And who best to comfort one who, who is in the throes of depression than someone who has gone through the valley of the shadow of death and darkness? Who better? Now, don't mishear me. It's not that we cannot all come alongside and comfort and care and love those who are hurting. We can do that. But God comforted you, not just to make you comfortable, but so you could take whatever it is you have gone through to comfort others. Many of you know Bev has been through a a history of sexual abuse and, and, and mistreatment. She's writing on that right now, leading a Bible study, and a bunch of you ladies have been in. And it's amazing when she comes out and tells her story, women come out of the woodwork to be comforted with the comfort she's received. As you know, in our family, just recently, my brother-in-law was killed in a motorcycle accident six weeks ago, and you have come alongside to comfort us, and we have received that comfort. And in our family, we've had suicides, three, two suicides in our time of 30 years here, and who better to come alongside than someone who has been through that same dilemma, that same tragedy? God has comforted. You've gone through the deep valleys of divorce, of surviving cancer, of financial ruin of gone through an abortion and repenting of sexual or physical abuse, you use the way you have been comforted to comfort others in the body of Christ. Two applications. You ready? Application number one. How has God comforted you? What have you been through where you've been comforted by God? Now here's the application. I did this about 10 years ago. I want you to email me this week. And I want you to say, Gary, this is what I have been through. By God's grace, we're on the other end of that, or we're actually navigating those waters. I'm available to comfort other people. You with me? And I'm gonna, what I'm going to do when, they come, when folks come to my office and say, you know, we're in the midst of, I'm going to say, you know, I haven't experienced that, but here's a sister who has. I haven't experienced that, but here's a brother who has. I haven't experienced it, but here's a young man who's been in that same place. So you email me this week. And you say, Gary, this is what I've been through. We did cardboard testimonies about two or three years ago. I, I got those testimonies from the emails I got ten years ago. People who were battling and overcame various things in life. Second application. You've been comforted by somebody. You've been through some stuff. And somebody's come alongside you and they've been Jesus with flesh on. This week, this week, I want you to thank them. I don't care how you do it. I don't know how you get it. You got their name in your mind? Go ahead and write it down. Somebody that's come alongside you in a great time of need and ministered to you. This is a great week to be their encourager. To, to be their encourager. To thank God for them and to thank them for the role that they were willing to play. The role of the Spirit, he is our keeper. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. To be sealed is to, is to place ownership over someone, to have authority over it. And we were sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, it says in Ephesians 4.30. That is, we are secure in our salvation until the day of our redemption. In fact, because you are secure in Christ, in the Spirit, because He is your keeper, you can have great confidence. You can never lose the salvation that's been given to you. 
In fact, in Romans 8, it bears that out. Paul is writing, he says, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things to come, nor power, nor things to come, nor powers, height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The moment you come to faith in Christ, you are secured eternally, period. Does that mean you live a life of licentiousness because of that? No, you live a life of slavery to the Savior who saved you because of your great love for him. Finally, the Holy Spirit is our controller. If you want to read about that, I just preached a sermon. We went through Ephesians, did a whole sermon on what it means to be controlled or filled by the Spirit. It says in Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, for this is excess, but be filled or controlled by the Spirit. A a person who's filled with alcohol is controlled by something other than themselves. A person controlled by the Spirit or filled with the Spirit controlled by something other than themselves. A person controlled by alcohol does unnatural things a person controlled by the spirit does supernatural things and our character is impacted because of that we respond by seeing our character develop it's called the fruit of the spirit in galatians 5 the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience goodness kindness faithfulness gentleness and self-control when i think about the role of the holy spirit and teaching on the holy spirit i believe what we learn is a life that's submitted to the spirit is a life of power We think of submission, we don't think of power. But in this realm, when we submit ourselves to the Spirit of God, we experience the power of God on display through us. I'm asked questions a lot about Temple Bible Church, what we're like, what we believe in. And recently someone came to me and said, I don't see the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your body. It's a pretty judging statement, and so I took it in my prayer closet and said, Lord, is there evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in our body? I knew what they meant. They meant we don't see people speaking in tongues on Sunday. We don't see people doing prophetic utterance on Sunday. We don't have people doing words of knowledge on Sunday. I understand what they mean. I understand what they're saying. And so I said, I, I firmly believe that there's evidence of the Spirit of God at work at Temple Bible Church. So here's how I want to conclude. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ since you started attending Temple Bible Church, if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, I want you to stand up. Some point in time, you trusted Christ as your Savior. There's the evidence of the Spirit of God at work. Oh, wow. Keep standing. I want you to keep standing. I want you to keep standing. I want you to look around. This is the evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit in this body. If since you've been at Temple Bible Church, your marriage, which was in trouble, has been saved or you've been reconciled, I want you to stand up because you are evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit at work in this body. Your marriage is spared. Your marriage has been saved. You go ahead and stand. Look at that. That's amazing. And keep standing. That's the work of the, the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in our body. Keep standing. If you stood, you keep standing. If you have been set free from, a, from an addiction, from drugs, alcohol, sexual addiction, and eating disorder, I want you to stand because you are evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit at work in this body. Stand up.
if you are one of those people I have preached about in the past and your life was filled with bitterness and filled with anger and filled with all types of worry and anxiety, but God has replaced that with the peace of Christ, you stand right now because you are evidence of the Holy Spirit at work within this body. You go ahead and stand right now. You are the evidence that the Spirit of God is alive and working in this body. If you at some point in time in your life recognize you are hopelessly, helplessly lost, and at some point in time you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're a saved man or woman, you stand up right now because you are evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in this body. Spirit of God, you have come to glorify our Savior. And that's what we do. We magnify him. We don't magnify any man or any place or any church. We magnify you and you alone. If your heart's beating out of your chest right now because you're not sure Jesus is your Savior, you confess that. Or maybe that litany of things that we read, you know that you haven't confessed and repented, you change. You can have security that you're kept until the day of redemption. Not because of you or me or anyone else, but because of the Spirit of God who keeps you in His stead forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for displaying your glory to us this day. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Bless you.